Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, journalists source confidentiality. The Met has been criticised for using legal powers to obtain the identity of sources from journalists' phone records. Should the police be able to do this? The general election debates. Nigel Farage has been invited to take part in one of the leadership TV battles. Should UKIP be included? And where does this leave the SNP and the Greens? And is the news bad for your health? Philosophers are saying that reading the news every day gives you a frightening and inaccurate image of the world and stops us from thinking. Is it time to disconnect from the modern news media for your own sanity? And joining us this podcast are two of the media's best and brightest. Matthew Eltringham is executive editor of the BBC College of Journalism and Adam Dustigow is digital communications manager at the Confederation of British Industry. Media Focus. So first up, our press source is sacred. The police have been criticised for using national security laws to access the phone logs of reporters without a warrant and trace the sources of the Plebgate and Chris Hoon stories. The government has said they intend to tighten the law, but the Met have claimed that they will continue to use the powers, saying that whether a source or not, nobody is above the law. Matthew, should the police be able to do this? Uh, no, absolutely not. Journalists need whistleblowers, and whistleblowers need to be able to tell their story. They need to be able to hold people to account from, from within the organisation. If it, it becomes common practice, as it appears to be coming, uh, that the police can uh, willy-nilly just rip phone records from journalists, and not just journalists, other professions as well, because I know there are other professions who are concerned about the way the police are behaving, then uh, it, 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 cl- it closes down and clamps down on, on all the uh, ability to hold, hold power to account. Journalists need anonymity. They need to be able to protect their sources in order to do their work properly. Do you think the police have a point, though, that, I mean, I, I agree with you, don't get me wrong, but I, I think the police might turn around and say, look, if there's illegality and we know that this journalist, you know, can lead us to that perpetrator, then we ought to, we're not doing our job if we don't try and sniff out the uh, the wrong'uns, as it were. Well, I mean, well, well clearly, you know, n- nobody is above the law, and, and I don't think journalists would would ever argue that they were above the law. And, and clearly there are uh, exceptional circumstances when it is appropriate that uh, journalists, if not reveal their sources, certainly help the police with with information. I mean, the BBC editorial policy guidelines are are, are very clear that we would not normally, we would not normally uh, reveal uh, information or, or, or hand over untransmitted material to the police other than if it had gone through a judicial process. But I think the issue here is that, that um, with, the, uh, with REPO, the Regulation of Investory Powers Act, the, the problem is that, that the police aren't themselves accountable at all because they are, they are allowing themselves to, to take phone records and to, to go behind the scenes and find out what, what journalists are up to. There is no accountability to the, judicial, to the judicial process. And I think you'll find most people, including politicians who were originally behind the act in, in, in 2000, are now arguing that it's out of date and needs to be reformed. And in terms of the BBC dealing with people undercover and uh, informants and confidential sources, are you seeing fewer people coming forward now because they feel that they might ultimately get sniffed out, as it were? It's certainly a major concern for, for all journalists that if they are being snooped on by the police, uh, whistleblowers will, will, will fear for their own safety and their own security, and they will be much more reluctant to come forward uh, and therefore that not only would the sources of, of our stories 
uh, dry up, then the ability for journalists to hold people to account and, and to uncover wrongdoing will be hindered. I mean, Adam, you're, a, you're an expert on the electric interweb, as it were. Do you not see it from the temptation of the police's point of view that because it is so easy to ascertain who their sources are now, that it is just a, a, a kind of Google search away, albeit one in the protected space, that, that you, in a sense you can't blame them. They want to know who it is. It's easier. That information's much easier than ever to get. Why shouldn't they get it? I think it's one of personal judgment. It's almost a question of ethics. Uh, I know there's a code of uh, practice being touted, but I, I think it is something where you need a judicial view on because there's so much data that you can get almost instantaneously. And, and to be clear, it's, not off, it's often not the contents of, of an email yeah, or a text exactly message. Right, yeah. It's the yeah. time of when it happens. Um, it's, who it's who it's between. Yeah. We're talking such vast volumes of data that you can actually intuit quite a lot. It's yeah. not as much as that you sent me an email at 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm. It's that you sent me an email and then I sent something to someone else and the patterns of when these, these are occurring, it's actually, it's not the individual communications yeah. as much as mm. the overall trends that you can And you, and you put together, in a, in a picture can very quickly yeah. and very easily be put together off the back of all that metadata. Absolutely. And that's the danger. I think the, I can't remember if it's um, which of the large kind of software companies it is. Mm. It may very well be Microsoft. In thinking about what is anonymity, the um, amounts of large de- anonymous data sets you need before they cease to be confidential. So I think it's with four pieces of metadata yeah. you can begin to pull yeah. together a, a real-life identity. And so, actually, if you take that into account, that could be publicly available academic data, that could be publicly government uh, available government data. So, so in a sense, you yeah. don't even need to read the emails to work out what it is. So, for example, if my wife emailed me and then I emailed Domino's Pizza straight away, it's you could infer that she'd given me what she wanted on her pizza. Absolutely. I see, even without even knowing that. Well, if you're looking at um, two two people and they were... Um, only communicating between the hours of 11 and 2 in the morning, often on a Friday or Saturday night, you could probably develop uh, a picture of what the nature of the relationship is instead of it being 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. So you can you can start intuiting quite a lot when you see the patterns behind. Yeah. So you wouldn't get it from one email, but perhaps 10, perhaps 20. The thing with all of this, that's why it's such a matter of judgment, and it, it is something that does need a... a quite a hard oversight and, and that's why checks and balances yes. need yeah. to be need to be brought in into into the process here because currently there aren't any it's the you know one police officer can say to a, a senior police officer i need to do this fine off you go but i think we need to see those checks and balances which is why it's it's, it's becoming increasingly important that permission to to pull the records has yeah. to go through a judge first i think it's also important to think about this is one set of privilege this is journalistic source privilege there's also parliamentary privilege. There's also medical privilege. There's also client lawyer privilege. Yes, absolutely. There, there are different sorts of privilege at stake. And if you take a step back, it's I'm no expert on this, but it'd be interesting to hear where where you think the you know the, the, it would stop. Um, you know what would uh, this kind of activity in email between a doctor and a patient be fair game? And if so, or or a lawyer and a defendant. Absolutely. Especially if the doctor met the patient and then immediately emailed some kind of oncologist or whatever, you would then, again, through uh, metadata, be able to infer exactly yeah. what was what he, he or she was doing, even though you didn't know the content. Absolutely. In a sense, it's it's almost a kind of an Aladdin's cave of metadata for the police that, you know, we're going to have to say to them, look, there's all the answers are immediately available to you, but you can't have them because, as you were saying, qualified privilege. I think there's, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of... Uh things that people give away for free readily and put in, onto the public public internet. I think there is something about uh, email that kind of chimes as something more personal, more confidential, closer to 
standard post. I don't know if it's something to do with the format, but it seems more of an intrusion that if you'd said it was someone's Facebook statuses, you would have said, well, that's fair game, it's public. But, um, yeah, there is something definite about a, a lot of the communications we make online that aren't as secure as we feel they are. I, th- mm. I think that's a very good point. Even before you get to the issue of whether or not the police are, are pulling phone records, the intrusions that we willingly give into our own privacy now through through very, very simple uh, activities on, on mm. the internet or, or through your mobile phones or through all that kind of everyday activity is, is something that we really need to get hold of and, and understand what information we're giving out on ourselves mm. and, and how much that, frankly, puts our, our, our safety and our security at risk. I think the... Um, to, to make a prediction which is where it all goes horribly wrong and, yeah, it's not a flying car moment nor is it a jetpack people but, will be listening to this 20 years from yes, now ridiculing so. you yeah. <laughs> um but the uh, i th- i think the next thing which will be uh not a scandal not a sh- more of a shock really um is uh geographic data mm. the amount of data that we're giving away by where our phones are or where our devices are when mm. we kind of do something if we're in a wi-fi hotspot we'll take geographic advertising mm. for instance but i think in terms of the ability for um those to see kind of perhaps improperly perhaps properly but to work out where we are and when we said things that's quite a big leap from knowing who i spoke to and when i spoke to them but also where i was and in terms of journalistic safety in in in, in more difficult parts of the world mm-hmm. one of the things we talk to our journalists about all the time is is not giving away your location mm-hmm. you know uh, turn, yep. turning off all all the all the filters you know there there are there are websites that are freely available that you can just plug into and find out where people are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because back in the day, you know, a, a prosecuting authority used to be able to triangulate a rapist or a murderer's location a year later because from the base stations, whereas now mm. the police can know where you are in real time because it, all they have to do is just go onto your iTunes account and if you've got location services enabled, then they know exactly where you there are you to within Absolutely. two Absolutely. feet. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's a downside to this and we've, we've discussed it. And as I say, I agree with you, but do you think there's, there's an upside to this in terms of protection of people? So, for example, you know, I have two nieces. I, I, I like the fact that they've got a mobile phone and we can track them or know their last known location because it's that's part of the, the safety is it i wouldn't want anyone hacking that information of course because then it becomes something that makes them unsafe but do, do you think there's any upsides to this gentlemen i think there's a big difference between uh people who are parents or carers um looking at children who are in their care and where you know where they are and what they're up to between that and the state which is obviously yeah, you have a right to liberty and you have a right to kind of uh, free movement and expression, which I think is kind of where this is headed. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think there's a balance, and, and I think we all need to be informed about where we are and how comfortable we feel about these kind of things. And, and, and part of making those informed decisions is actually having the knowledge and the information about what information we're giving away about ourselves and how comfortable we are in doing that, and also having the opportunity to stop giving that information away about ourselves that we are knowingly or unknowingly giving away. We need a process of education and, 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 and informing so that, so that mm. the world, you know, everybody now has a smartphone. We all know what we can do with it, but do we all know what it's doing, what it's telling everybody else? Mm. And I don't think we actually do. Yeah. But, but Adam, can I ask you a question? Is there any integrity in data at all now? Because, you know, even if you're a humble taxpayer, a civil servant could leave a, a CD of all your, uh, you know, of every single taxpayer on a train. You know, you look at Jennifer Lawrence and a lot of these Hollywood celebrities. I feel terrible for what's happened to them. But in a mm. sense, if and I'm, I'm not blaming them even 1%, but I'm glad there are no naked pictures of me at all because people 
can hack into iCloud. Should we expect now that, the, that any data is ultimately going to get hacked into? I think the first point is I, I, I welcome and reiterate the point that there are no naked pictures. <laughs> yeah, no At least not that. yet. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think I think there are there are huge benefits to uh, what can be done with large data sets. Um, I, I mean, a, a great example I. I saw recently was to do with uh, healthcare and asthma sufferers, whereby adding mm. on a um, little uh, gadget on top of an asthma pump, it could track every time, everywhere, and um, how lot, how many times you took a, a puff from your inhaler, which then generated a massive data set which could be given to a clinician who could say, well, you may not have realized it on a one-off instance, but every time you go to your grandmother's, you are having three puffs mm. from your inhaler. Mm. Every time you're going into town, you're having two puffs. Mm. And in that massive data set, there is huge good that the clinician can say, well, actually, these are risk zones or times of day uh, where you're more likely to have an asthma attack. So I think there are data sets when used properly can, can be phenomenal. I think that kind of comes back to the point where um, I think people are beginning to believe and see the power of data in a way that you perhaps wouldn't have a few years ago, now there are ways to actually manage these vast data sets and interrogate them and analyze them in ways that uh, can be quite intuitive uh, to to the human mind. And actually, there's kind of a, it's it, in, in recent years, I think it's jumped from being lots of numbers in a spreadsheet into things that are actual, actually quite organic, immediately intuitive ways mm. of looking at data. Matthew, what does it mean for journalists going forward then? You know, you run the BBC College of Journalism. Mm. Clearly, metadata can be used to ascertain through jigsaw identification who journalist sources are, through whether that you just happen to use the same Wi-Fi as that person or whether they be in the same proximity. Is there something where journalists are just going to have to accept this as a reality and change their behaviour going forward, whether it be disable location services, whether it be have a burner phone, separate hotmails, whatever it is, and that's going to be part of being a journalist from now on well i, th- I think we're we're, we're certainly needing need to have a look at all of that i mean who knows we could be back to the days of uh, meetings in in you know back rooms of pubs and smoke filled rooms rather than uh, you know r- rather than having phone co- phone conversations but i think you know one one thing will not change is is that journalists need and desire to protect their sources in order to get the stories and we will do what we need to do to to make sure that we continue to to do exactly that Should UKIP take part in the 2015 election debates? The broadcasters have agreed that there will be three televised debates next year. Nigel Farage will feature in one, Clegg in two, and Cameron and Miliband in all three. The Greens and the SNP aren't in any. Adam, given the recent polling figures, isn't it only fair that Nigel participates? Well, I think the the, the format of the the events, one with the two, one with the three, and then one with the four, was quite uh, wittily summed up for me recently, which is you have the purists, the statists, and the opportunist. <laughs> so I think it's... Um, I like that. The question I, I asked when I, when I first thought this was, well, why weren't there more than three? Why haven't there always been lots of voices that reflect modern Britain? And I think, if anything, the, um, the whole thing with Farage, love him or hate him, there is a, an assumption that the political discourse is encompassed by those Westminster leaders as opposed to those around the country be it the SNP, the Greens, or Plaid in Wales. So I think it's, it's, it'll be great TV, and that's a guaranteed factor. And I think that's in a way that, uh, that's been more of a motivator uh, to get Farage on than any other, other party leader. 
I mean, for your sins, you used to be head of digital at the Labour Party. I did. Do you, do you think that a lot of Farage's supporters, just general people's disconnect from Westminster per se, that it's like a plague on all of their houses? And, and I wonder, because you dealt with social media at the Labour Party, which tend to deal with a younger demographic, mm-hmm. did you see that on you know tweets when it was Gordon and Tony and now Ed? I think the, uh, uh, it, this did force me to think back uh, quite to back in the years, day, yeah. um, to the last set of uh, mm. television debates, which were, and uh, I, d- I don't know if you re- if you care to remember that, but um, that were, 2010 was to be the election that was the internet election. So obviously, working in digital it was an ex- exciting place to be. However, I think with the debates, it just reminded us that it was in fact a, a television election mm. with a strong element of, of social media involved as well. And I think the um, the interesting part of this debate dialogue is that there's also YouTube, The Guardian, and I think The Telegraph pushing mm. for online debates. Mm. Um, but a trend that we picked up on and really kind of worked to in the last general election was the, the phenomenon of dual screen television viewing where you had people watching, but then um, we, we kind of decided that we would just provide information for people who supported us in the online space to be informed of what was going on on, on, on the TV. Um, and that worked very well. But now it's getting to the point where two-thirds of people sit there with another device watching TV. And you can see that in, in how TV's changing, kind of almost triangulating to meet that need. Mm. Um, so I think the just to go way back to you and answer your question, which is I think from a younger generation's point of view, it kind of makes me think, well, perhaps it isn't a generational thing. Perhaps it is a satisfied, dissatisfied thing. Mm. Or perhaps it's something about the way the nature of politics is changing instead of having big block parties into smaller campaigns and issues and things like that. And if you think about it, perhaps um, someone like 38 Degrees could be ideal moderators for a future uh, debate and actually take it away from uh, kind of media companies and say, well, actually, there are big campaign single issue Internet sites that are Mm. interacting with people in a one to one way. Matthew, do you think the solution is to have 27 debates and have a mathematician come up with every conceivable mathematical combination of every party being involved or not involved? I Just listening to Adam, it raised lots of really interesting questions and thoughts in, in my mind. I mean, the first thing to say would be that 2010, you know, uh, was supposed to be the internet election. And, and, and what actually happened was the TV debates just sucked the life out of the campaign. Mm-hmm. It just became about the TV debate. It was the elephant in the room, wasn't it? It was the elephant in the room all the time. And it, and it was all, and anybody, and all anybody ever wanted to talk about was preparation for the debate and, and mm-hmm. then a wash up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it sucked all, all the life out of it on the one hand. On the other hand, clearly from you know, TV's point of view, from, you know, from BBC, from Sky, ITV and Channel 4, they got huge viewing figures. So obviously they, they want to get them back on. So, so these, you know, the, the way that they frame these debates, one of the... You know, one of the key factors has been okay. What is the most likely format that will get the debate? Will get the debates on because they attract they attracted a huge audience. They will continue to, to attract a huge audience, and there is an opportunity to see um, your potential prime ministers or political mm-hmm. leaders in 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 a in a more open, wider forum, and you get a better sense of them. Uh, you know, in, in in that hour, hour and a half of on on TV than you might in in an interview with Paxman or Humphreys. It's all about authenticity, though. That's that's the, mm. that's the key thing. And and do you know what? I'm increasingly sceptical about even how social media um, uh, enables and allows authenticity um, as as a mechanism, unless the individual behind that social media activity is herself or himself authentic. Because, as I'm sure Adam would admit, a lot of the social media activity 
even in 2010, was driven corporately, if I can describe the Labour Party as such. I think um, the Labour Party is no innocent or more guilty yeah, than any other party. Organi- you know, so, so, so the idea that you know, the, the Guardian Telegraph YouTube proposal is quite unclear as to exactly what it would be other than being on YouTube. Mm. Do you not think it, in a way, it denigrates parliamentary democracy? Because these are leaders of political parties and they have cabinets and shadow cabinets. And at the moment, there's this fetish with the media that everything has to be localised around the leader and his battles with either his or her own backbenchers or his own cabinet or the, 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 you know, their, their own political opinion. Clearly, they, they do get the opportunity to interact in the media all the time. Just think of Prime Minister's questions every Wednesday. They're, they're tearing strips off one another there. Do, do you think this is more about spectacle than insight? I think that the TV companies would, would absolutely argue that it is about insight. I think there's no there's no doubt about there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's certainly good television. That's, that's great television. You know, I agree with Nick, or not, as the case may be. Yeah, exactly. You know. yeah. um, I mean, going back to your earlier point about Farage, I mean, the reason why he's so incredibly successful is because he presents himself as the as the, one of, if not the most authentic political figures, you know, around around at the time, and that's that among other reasons is one of the reasons why he he resonates so well with with a, with a disaffected and, and disenchanted audience, and he has an, an ability to cut through the organisation and and the. The, the structure to talk directly to a quite a disaffected audience, an audience of people who are who are disillusioned with the political process. But that happens, as you say, it happens all. It's happening all the time. I mean, Nick Clegg's got his show on LBC. Nigel Farage has got his show on LBC. There is there is an increasingly an opportunity for any. There is any platform anybody wants to wants to pick on to to to, uh, to reach out to their to, to their potential voters. Adam, do you think the second screen phenomenon is only going to get uh, more prevalent as it were? I mean, you can't you can't watch Question Time without it would be unthinkable now to not have a device in front of you and watch all your friends slag off that particular speaker or agree with them. You just even on the show they encourage it now, don't they? I mean, they have the the, the extra guest that's on Twitter only. Absolutely, I think the uh, I think it's kind of like a twofold thing. There's uh, from the audience point of view. It, it finally allows you to do that thing that you have always done, which is shouting at the TV mm-hmm. or agreeing with the TV. It's, it's allowing you to um, participate with other people who share your interest, like the programme you're watching, and you can also talk to the people who are on the programme, which is, if you think about, you know, mindset 30, 40 years ago, watching TV, it was very much us and them. Now it's more about we can do this and we shall tell this story. And I think that's kind of the from the uh, television uh, company's point of view, Something that's increasingly more important in a in an age where, uh, thanks to disruptive technologies like the internet, the ability to produce and show and become a TV channel, if you will, uh, the technologies drop down quite a lot because you can broadcast mm. over the internet. Mm. Very similar to the point with politicians can get in touch with people in a, in you know very many ways. If the technology if the inst- infrastructure demands drop, you then need something that gives you an edge. And I think being able to tell a story and kind of share news or share your views with a channel, builds a sense of loyalty, brand loyalty, if you will, to a channel that, that you wouldn't get in other ways, but also can make for phenomenal TV. Mm. I mean, Matthew, do you, I understand that, you know, when you're presenting a rolling news channel, sometimes you can get some quite insightful tweets at the time that can add something particularly for celebrity or whatever dies, you know, all the tributes flood in. But most tweets tend to be quite inane, I think, and as a producer on a TV channel, I think, you, you know, does it really add any value in terms of adding an extra level of insight or analysis, social media? I, I think it depends on how you use it. I mean, I spend a lot of my time developing how the BBC uses social media and as a, and as a source for 
for for news and and yeah even opinion it's it's fantastically it's fantastically valuable but you have to treat that with editorial skepticism as well it's ju- it is just another source i mean i give you the example uh, many years ago nick griffin uh, was on question time I remember it well. You remember it well, yeah. Um, and the know, whole the whole question time it was like a meta question time. Yeah, because it was, it was all about whether he should be on it, even in the show. <laughs> yeah, in, even in even in the show. Now, what was extraordinary about that was I, I at the time with the BBC had a had a very big um, message board uh, running called Have Your Say. Twitter was also beginning to grow and beginning to emerge. Now, if you read the response to the question time itself on Twitter, and then you looked again at what Have Your Say was saying, it was like you're watching two different shows, mm. two completely different shows. So you have to be completely aware of, of the platform and of the demographic behind that platform. The, the view of Have Your Say was very much that it had been a bit of a lynch mob and mm. he hadn't been given a fair shout, uh, whereas uh, the, the Twitter were hanging him as mm. he was speaking. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm all for him going on shows like that because when Paxman interviewed him, he completely annihilated him. I think if you give him the oxygen of publicity, he reveals what an idiot he is with policies that don't stack up. Well, I, I mean, I think I think that that's the point about about you know making these people accountable, examining their policies and 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 them as as individuals precisely. But the the, the broader point about social media is is that you know you've you've got to look at the the, the breadth of it, mm. but the basic the the, the basic benefit of it is that it allows you a channel of communication that otherwise you you or previously you did not have but adam I'm, final question to you on this uh, you know ukip are they, they've polled well in by-elections but mm-hmm. nationally they're not they're not amazingly well why aren't the greens and the smp getting the same kind of attention do you think that there's um there's a the hole there that someone should look at i think it is uh i think it's the nature of how we've we've kind of viewed politics in this country uh, up until recent years. I think that the whole thing about UKIP that always uh, kind of seems ironic is they're in fact driving the country towards a more European style of politics where mm. you have uh, you know, kind of more sm- smaller parties across the board. I think uh, looking at the SNP and better together in the Scottish independence referendum, I mean, that was those TV de- debates were uh, kind of huge narrative points in the mm in the campaign and did set the tone for how people were going to vote and really kind of opinion changes. So I think it's kind of looking at something that mirrors the reality of we know what the politicians want, we know what the broadcasters want. I think it could be time to see what the audience wants, which Mm. thanks to a lot of these Mm. technologies is something that can be explored more and more. So I think that's where the opportunity is. Now, is the news bad for you? You should stop reading the news, says philosopher Rolf Debelli, because media agencies publish titbits that don't really concern our lives and don't require thinking. He says the news presents a skewed image of the world, needlessly frightens us and hinders our ability to think deeply and creatively. Matthew, does our philosopher friend have a point? <laughs> well, I don't think I'd be the, the first or the last journalist to confess that when I go on holiday, I make an effort to keep away from the news. But... Journalism is, the, you know, news is is the stuff of life. I mean, it, you know, it's everything from from gossip about who won or lost strictly to um, the fate of nations. If you cut yourself off from that, you're, you're cutting yourself off from local communities, from wider communities, from any interaction in the world. Now, you know, he ha- he makes a a more detailed, more interesting point about formats and about the kind of news. The kind of urgency of 24-hour news media. The urgency of 24-hour news. The constant need for spectacle. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the the demand for now and the increasingly shorter forms that that we appear to be 
uh, heading towards in terms of you know people's attention spans. I think those are those are those are far more challenging points that um, I think threaten to get lost in the headline um, that news is bad for you. News is clearly not bad for you. Uh, you just need to look at what happened in the Arab Spring. Information is power, and clearly news is about giving people that information and therefore giving them the power to make the decisions for themselves about how they run their lives and how, they, and how their countries are run. Adam, are you a news addict like me? Because I, I genuinely am. I wake up at five o'clock and wake up to money straight away is on Five Live, then the Today programme, then I'll check BBC Breakfast just to see what's being said. Uh, and then I'm you know, on the train in, I read the Telegraph and the Times and I even check the sun and then I'm cu- I've got that many news alerts on my phone. You just, it, it is difficult to make sense of it all because it's just spectacle, isn't it? There is, there is a lot going on and I think, yeah, I, I have to put my hands up. I am a, a news addict and it's, it's interesting that we talk about it in terms of addiction and things like that and I've seen uh, some quite interesting stuff about how we compare uh, news addiction to food indi- addiction. I think my favourite uh, word that I found kind of reading up on this was infobesity. Oh, I like that. Is, you know, I'm infobese. Yeah. Um, infobesity gate. I know the price of everything gate. and the value of nothing. Yeah. Now I'm a news addict. However, I started off way back when um, as a philosopher. So when a philosopher came up, I was like, okay, this is great. I'm going to do what I did for pretty much all of my university career, which is find out what someone else much cleverer said. Mm. And then good call. So I, I picked out a particularly That's good... why you two are on, frankly. Yeah, particularly <laughs> good um, uh, philosopher uh, who's referring to a new technology. So I'm going to just go for the quote and then more than welcome to guess who and what they're talking about. So it destroys memory and weakens the mind, relieving it of what makes it strong. It is an inhuman thing. Any guesses as to who and what they're talking about? No, but it'll be some. It will be one of the ancients, no doubt. No, God, you, no? You, yeah, yeah. So that was Socrates talking about writing in 500 BC. <laughs> he was right, but he never had a, a Google alert yeah. out well, for his. Well, <laughs> I feel you know perhaps if he'd read some of the work that you can. Get but in, Adam, I mean, yeah. you must you must know. Um, you know, when we were knocking about in the Labour Party back in the day, I remember when um, Blair was arguing with his backbenchers over foundation hospitals, and I remember mm. no one actually in the media really, particularly in the TV media actually analyse whether foundation hospitals were a good or a bad thing. It was all about this battle that Blair had with his backbenchers. And I even remember there was like an animated sting with some dramatic music. It was like out the day-to-day. Yeah. And that, that was the moment where I thought the news is getting in the way here. This is purely about the spectacle of whether Blair's going to, quote-unquote, beat his backbenchers. And no one actually thought, as a society, how should we be organising our schools and hospitals? I think the thing about this article that made it different to a lot of other things is that we were talking about information overload in the context of the news, not in advertising. So we've heard about seeing a lot, you know, tens of thousands of advertising images every day, but this is about news, which is something that's a bit more sacrosanct, I think, in, in terms of our society and certainly as a, a trusted and authoritative source. And I think that sort of shift from uh, what uh, news being reported as facts uh, to more commentary or analysis could could kind of uh, corrode that respect for it. I think we have to ask ourselves some really interesting, really difficult questions, uh, you know, a, a, around kind of news and, and, and what, are we, what are we trying to do with mm-hmm. news? So, you know, you see the growth of BuzzFeed and the Huffington Post and mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're looking all the time for audience because that's yeah. driving, that drives advertising revenue. Clickbait and clickbait, so on. Clickbait, listicles, you know, because people click on it, they look at it. So they will then immediately say, well, hang on a minute. Yes, we have all that fun stuff, but next to that fun stuff, we've got lots of, really serious politics you you look at vice and you say and vice will say exactly the same thing yeah. and yes there is a lot of serious news that that, that happens on on these on these platforms 
And I think the other the other key thing to think about is is you know who are the platforms that are dominating social discourse? We talked about them earlier. You know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. actually uh, YouTube, and actually you know you, you're you're right. They don't actually really care that much about news. They care about clicks and they care about audience. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, if a skateboarding duck is going to get more clicks, it's going to get more advertising revenue than David Cameron saying, I'm going to reform the NHS again. Um, then they're going to be much more interested in, in, in that. Do you think there's something to be said, though, Matthew, about slowing news down? So, you know, you look at the rolling news channels and it's always got a litany of journalists stood miserably in the rain outside of the Home Office or New Scotland Yard or whatever, endlessly kind of analysing what someone might say. I try to not watch that kind of coverage and just watch news at 10 because at least someone's collated what's actually happened or not. Um, but do you think there is something to be said about uh, you know having potentially fewer news sources, uh, being more discerning in those choices, but slowing the thing down and having it more analysis rather than kind of event driven? I, I, th- I think both and. If I can, if I can, of course, <laughs> use that use that expression here. I mean, clearly, you know, journalism has always been, ever since the dawn of newspapers, has been, all, always been about getting the story first and getting it out first. Now, often that's just you know a simple fact, um, and. The you know the, the the social media internet imperative has meant that it's always been you know that that has sp- speeded that need to be first with the story mm. up even more and the imperative of now has, is is much stronger now than it than it ever was. Having said that, the need for context and analysis um, and narrative is is even more important to provide that understanding about what these facts. Ah, because otherwise, you, you, you know, you find yourself breaking not stories, but facts. So what mm. does it mean that mm. um, Nick Clegg had, you know, egg and chips for lunch on, on, on Tuesday? It might mean something, it might not, you know. That's, what, that's the point about, about slow news and context. I think you're absolutely right. We need to have both. We need mm. to have both slow news that allows people to understand and interpret and, and analyse as well as this has happened now because, you know, it, it might be quite important to get out that information fast and quick. People want to know it fast and quick. It seems that every time a new technology comes along, a new platform, whatever it is, we get this sort of argument. So be it Socrates mm. and writing, but also when the Gutenberg press turned up, it was how, how can we have printed words instead of handwritten words because it's so much quicker to print books yeah. and, and yeah. do things yeah. like that. And I think there is a period of flux where uh, it takes time to work out what, what we want from a new platform. But yeah, I think the, the, the point you were making is that it's about relevance. It's explaining yeah. to people that these mm, facts may not mean anything right. to you, but if made relevant, then that's, that's where the news comes in. And I think that's, uh, that's quite compelling. So I shan't give that up, but I probably <laughs> should stop watching the videos of the skateboarding ducks. Uh, I think uh, podcasts are the way forward, really, in terms of the future. So, But I'm bound to say that. I think we're running out of metaphorical tape, gentlemen, so we need to draw things to a close. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Matthew, how do people follow you on Twitter? Do you have a blog that people can visit and and uh, keep abreast with what you're up to? Absolutely. So um, uh, I tweet under Matt Says, but I spend probably more time tweeting on the, the uh, BBC College uh, accounts. That's at BBC College. We've got... For, for all the media aficionados and indeed media students out there, I run a, a website that, that basically uh, unpicks how the BBC does its journalism. So there's an incredible amount of stuff on there about how we do our social media, how how political interviewers like John Humphreys and, and Hugh Edwards prepare for interviews and do interviews, 
all kinds of stuff and like that. And that's open to all? That's open to, that's open to wow. anybody and everybody. Just search BBC Journalism on, on, um, on Google and you'll find it. And uh, I would uh, heartily recommend you everybody having a look at it. Oh, certainly will, Matthew. Adam, how do people stalk you on Twitter? Oh, very straightforwardly, it's at Adam Dustergear. And uh, do you look after the CBI's uh, Twitter as well? I do. They're on at CBI Tweets. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard. And do go to the website, mediafocus.org.uk, where you can leave your email address and then sign up to receive a fortnightly email when the new podcast comes out. Thank you ever so much for listening. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!